This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. It's the Sunday debate. And this week, we're enjoying a head-to-head from a little while back in the archive, discussing the future of technology and asking what place humanity will have within it. Here's our host, the journalist and broadcaster, Zainab Badawi, with more. Hello, I'm Zainab Badawi, and welcome to this Intelligence Square debate on artificial intelligence and the threat it poses to our jobs, how much of a threat it poses to our jobs. Now, experts predict that millions and millions of jobs could be taken over by a computer or a robot in the next 20 years. And the question is, how worried should we be? Could this lead to mass unemployment, greater inequalities, even social unrest? Or should we look forward to the day when computers or robots can match or even outperform humans? So our motion today is be afraid, be very afraid. The robots are coming and they will destroy our livelihoods. And we have a great panel arguing for and against the motion. So Andrew Keane is an internet entrepreneur, author and global commentator on all things digital and also arguing for the motion, George Magnus, independent economist and commentator who served as chief economist of uh, UBS, the bank. Against the motion, Walter Isaacson, best known for his acclaimed biography of Steve Jobs, and Pippa Malmgren is co-founder of H Robotics, which makes drones for commercial purposes. That is our panel. Welcome to you all. So... You're going to hear from our four panellists make their opening arguments, and then I will throw the debate open to uh, the audience. But uh, I should also say that as you were also all coming into the hall today, you were asked to vote on the motion to see where you stand, and then we're going to ask you to vote again at the end of the debate to see if opinions have uh, shifted. And let me just say, if you are for the motion, you tear this off, you put put it into the box, against, you put it in. If you're not not sure, you just put the whole thing in. So let's have our uh, first speaker arguing for the motion, Andrew Keane, Executive Director of the Silicon Valley Salon Futurecast. Andrew's been described as the Antichrist of Silicon Valley. And in his latest book, The Internet is Not the Answer, he argues that the Internet is having a disastrous impact on our lives. Tell us more, Andrew. Please make your way to the lectern. So I've got some good and bad news. And since we're in England, we'll start with the good news because we always need to end with the bad news. Um, The good news from your point of view, and of course I'm arguing that we should be scared, but there's one thing we shouldn't be scared of. Walter actually in his excellent new book, The Innovators, talks about this in some detail. We don't need to be scared of what one futurist in Silicon Valley, Ray Kurzweil, the head of engineering at Google, calls the singularity. We don't need to fear that in 20 or 30 or even 50 years, we will become, as human beings, indistinguishable from computers. In other words, in 50 years, we could all be here, could be like a science fiction movie, and we won't know whether you're sitting next to a computer or not. You won't know who's a robot and who isn't. So that's the good news. You don't have to worry about singularity. 
But that doesn't mean we should not be fearful of robots. That doesn't mean that we have a lot to be scared about. Just because we're not about to become indistinguishable from robots doesn't mean they're about to take away our livelihood. Now, a little birdie told me about this audience that you were quite prosperous. And I'm guessing that many of you are lawyers or doctors, journalists, people trained in a field. You probably went to university. You spent years acquiring your intelligence, your skill, your intellect, and you sell that skill as a teacher, as a doctor, as an accountant, as a lawyer. Your value in the economy is based on that expertise. And it is you, I'm afraid, who have the most to fear from this great revolution, the digital revolution, which one set of economists call our second machine age, because this is as profound, as earth-shaking, as culturally, socially, and above all else, economically profound as the first industrial revolution of the 19th century. Everything is going to change. And particularly, everything is going to change in your world. I hope you're already scared. You should be. What we're on the brink of is a world of increasingly intense, sophisticated, artificial intelligence. In Silicon Valley, where I'm from, we call it the machine learning revolution. It's the revolution of algorithms, not the traditional science fiction, old-fashioned H.G. Wells notion, Doctor Who, of the robot trundling along the street, the Dalek. Get that image out of your mind. Think of the algorithm. Think of the self-driving car. Think of Google. Think of these incredible new technologies which are coming out of Silicon Valley, which are essentially replacing human labor, skilled human labor. Because here's the paradox. Unfortunately, I can't call it the keen paradox. Someone's already taken that. A Czech robot expert called Jan Morovich. He came up with the Morovich paradox. The Morovich paradox is that it's really hard for computers to replicate what seems to us to be simple tasks. Simple tasks like doing the garden, the washing up, cooking, cutting someone's hair. But on the other hand, and here is the dark, scary, horrific element to the new world we're about to enter, it's not difficult to do what seems to us, at least, to be the difficult things. Many of you have spent your lives acquiring knowledge as doctors, as lawyers, as teachers. You'll have spent years learning to diagnose illness. You'll have spent months, university courses, figuring out how to grade an essay. At law school, you will have learned about how to deal with patent law in your own unique human way. The bad news, and this is really bad news for most of you, and especially for your kids, because they are trying to follow in your footsteps, is that this world is about to be swept away by the digital revolution, by the network society that, of course, is being driven by Moore's law, by the doubling of computer processing power every 18 months. We are on the brink of one of the great revolutions in human history. And the problem with that is that we're going to have products, services, that will make more and more of your skilled labor redundant, useless. There's no value. Machines will learn how to diagnose diseases. IBM, who own Watson, one of the most sophisticated of these new machines, have even claimed publicly, I think they have a bit of a nerve doing it, but we have to remember something about IBM these days. They claim that Watson will be the world's leading diagnostician. What does that say for all doctors around the world? We already have software now that grades essays. What becomes of school teachers? What becomes of university teachers? Nicholas Carr, the great internet writer, has just come out with a book called The Glass Cage, in that he talks about technology that will replicate litigation, that will mean that the patent lawyer, the person who spent years studying this subject at university, is now redundant. 
Two researchers at Oxford University have argued that over the next 10 years, 47% of our jobs will become irrelevant. And those 47%, I'm afraid, for you guys, are your kind of jobs. Your jobs in medicine, in teaching, in law, in the professions, that old meritocracy, the cultural, economic, and political backbone of 19th and 20th century life is about to be decimated. And we should all be fearful of that. Whether it's us losing our jobs, our kids, whether it's our neighbor, whether it's our friend, it undermines our political culture. It has deep, very, very troubling implications for politics too. And it's not just skilled people. The self-driving car, of course, will make the cab driver, the UPS delivery person redundant. I know Pippa has come here with one of her drones. Very sexy, perhaps, in a way, but not sexy if you're a UPS driver. And as Jeff Bezos, as Amazon, has publicly said, he wants drones to be delivering his product. So do so many other e-commerce companies. So it's not just skilled labor. It's not just the professional class. It's not just those people who have been fortunate or unfortunate enough to go to university. We have a large audience, a television audience, from the developing world. These are people who are embracing education, who see it as a way out of poverty. I'm afraid the news is really troubling for them because they missed the bus. That bus turned up regularly throughout the 19th and 20th century, but that bus isn't coming anymore in the 21st century. Development, which was always taken for granted, no longer will happen. And we have these increasing inequalities in Silicon Valley because all the wealth is going to the platform companies. All the wealth is going to companies like Amazon and Google and the other companies that have harnessed this technology for their own benefit. What we're seeing is a hollowing out of the middle class, a hollowing out of the kind of jobs that you guys have depended on, and a replacement by the algorithm, by the machine, and by a tiny group of people who own and control that machine. And what we will see, and this is the most troubling thing, we are not on the verge of singularity. Humans will still have a role but it's only going to be 10 or 15% of humans, 10 or 15% of us who know how to talk to the robots, who know how to metaphorically at least hold their hand and fondle them. That's where the new power is, 10 or 15%, a huge underclass and nothing in between. That's the reason, I'm afraid, why you should be afraid, very afraid. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, um, Andrew. So our second um, speaker is uh, speaking against the motion, Walter Isaacson. And Walter became famous for his uh, internationally acclaimed book on the life of Steve Jobs, and he gained unprecedented access to Steve Jobs in the last months of his life. He's also president and CEO of the Aspen Institute in Washington and a former chairman and CEO of CNN and the managing editor of Time magazine. How do you fit it all in? Thank you for making the time for us today. Your time starts when you get to the lectern. Thank you. very much and I have good news for you and good news. The good news is you don't have to be afraid and the other piece of good news is there's no bad news in this. The future is really going to be cool. Uh, since, my, uh, <laughs> since my distinguished opponent Mr. Keene started with the industrial revolution and said that this new revolution would be as disruptive as the industrial revolution, let me begin by reminding you that the Industrial Revolution wasn't all that bad. And at the end of it, we had more jobs, not fewer jobs. I would like to invoke Lord Byron, who in the, uh, was the original Andrew Keene. He was a Luddite at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. I mean that literally. His only speech in the House of Lords was defending the followers of Ned Ludd, who were smashing the mechanical looms coming up. 
during the Industrial Revolution in England under the theory that these looms would put people out of work. He was wrong then, just as the neo-Luddites are wrong today. Uh, the total number of people in the fabric industry and in the clothing industry certainly increased four times during the Industrial Revolution and ten times to today. But Lord Byron had a wonderful, beautiful daughter. Ada Byron, later known as the Countess of Lovelace, was somebody who had the poetic sensibilities of a father. But her mother, Lady Byron, made sure she was tutored only in mathematics because she didn't want uh, Ada to grow up to be like her father. If you know Lord Byron, you can see Lady Byron's point about her becoming too much of a romantic poet. So as it was, uh, Ada ended up loving what she called poetical science. She loved the connection of poetry and science. And when she looked at those mechanical looms that we've talked about that her father feared were putting people out of work, she saw how the punch cards could instruct those looms to do beautiful patterns. And she published a scientific paper in the 1830s about how those punch cards could be used on a calculating machine her friend Charles Babbage was building to make the calculating machine do more than just numbers, but do anything that could be noted in symbols, such as words or pictures or music. In other words, she conceived the modern computer. And thus, we have the neo-Luddites in the Lord Byron tradition who think that the modern computer will be our uh, end-all in terms of jobs and that it will end up putting people out of work. I think they are as wrong as the original Luddites were, as we have seen in the 50 years of the computer revolution. It has always led, as every piece of technology for the past 200 years, indeed for the past 2,000 years, to greater wealth, more disposable income, and thus more jobs as people have more needs and desires fulfilled. Technology can indeed be disruptive. It can disrupt certain jobs, as Mr. Keene has said, but it always has, and I submit always will, produce more jobs because it produces more wealth, more personal income, more per capita wealth, and thus more things that we can make and buy. We have 200 years of data showing that. Take the mechanical looms I just talked about. They were invented in 1800 in Lyon, France. Did they end up reducing employment in the textile industry there? No. Two centuries later, Lyon is the top center for producing textiles. It's the home of the Textile and Chemical Institute, four other institutes, 40 labs, 140 companies, and 10,000 textile jobs. Uh, every succeeding generation has had a new wave of worry, uh, dire warnings that jobs are being threatened. But in each one of these cases, they turned out to be wrong. I was at Time magazine, and I went back to look 50 years ago, 50 years ago to this date almost. Time magazine did a cover, just like, this, just like the uh, line that we're looking at. It said, the robots are coming. Automation will take your job. It quoted a rather famous... Um, economic historian, Robert Hallbrenner. Most of you have heard of him. He says, the new technology is threatening a whole new group of skills. Sounded just like Mr. Keene. He said, the calculating, the remembering, the comparing, the okaying skills, the preserve of the office worker will go away and machines will invade society to make that type of human labor redundant. Well, guess what? It's been 50 years, and since then, Soon after he wrote that, we had the greatest leaps of technology you can imagine. The internet, the personal computer, and the microprocessor all come into play. But nobody has been rendered redundant. There's more jobs and more types of jobs now than there were 50 years ago. As the Harvard economist Lawrence Katz has said, people, has, people have always been able to create new jobs. People come up with new things to do. In my own trade, journalism, computers has, has disrupted many things. In some ways, uh, many reporters have been laid off. Yet more people work in journalism now and in the media than a decade ago or a generation ago. They're in jobs 
that I certainly wouldn't have imagined when I first joined a magazine. They're in web designers and search engine optimizers and jobs that were inconceivable just 10 years ago. Is Mark Andreessen, the person who invented the uh, web browser, said, just as most of us today have jobs that weren't invented 100 years ago, the same will be true 100 years from now. Let me give some examples. There's the app economy. It began in 2008 when Steve Jobs was convinced by other members of his management team to allow outsiders to create apps for the iPhone and then the iPad. The App Store alone since then has created 627,000 jobs compared to only 374,000 by Hollywood. The app economy last year was $100 billion, far surpassing the film industry. This is an industry that did not exist seven years ago. Uh, other advances in technology have helped facilitate new forms of work, such as the sharing economy, where people both here, New York, New Orleans, can drive cars, be part of Uber, be part of Airbnb, be part of Lyft. Likewise, online marketplaces such as Amazon and eBay have enabled the rise of artisans, makers, the type of people that existed in the pre-industrial age, people who had creative instincts and then could have connections to customers around the world. If, if you create a book or a song now, you have new ways to publish, as Pippa did with her own book, new ways to distribute. If you dream up a new specialty, such as, I don't know, pet therapist or ethical hacker or nutrition coach, this world allows you to find customers and provide a service, just as if you were an artisan or service maker in the pre-industrial revolution. It even helps long-established companies find markets all over the globe. There's a more fundamental shift going on in the economy that's also good. We're creating an on-demand or on-tap economy. If you need a housekeeper or a handyman, you don't have to go to a particular firm to get it. It can be done on-tap. If new technologies reduce the total number of jobs, we'd all be out of work now. So to make this personal, and having heard the tap of the bell, let me end with something very personal about a tale of one family over two centuries. The mechanical looms that Lord Byron railed against caused the price of cloth to drop sharply. People bought much more cloth after that, so much cloth, in fact, that a textile industry grew. So at the end of the 1800s, an immigrant entrepreneur named Victor Falber came here from the Polish town of Plock to the East End and began living as a cloth peddler. He began carting his bolts of cloth up to Oxford Street, down the road. Eventually, automation changed things, and the ready-to-wear industry made it harder for him to thrive. His store went under, but if you walk to Oxford Street, you still see V. Falber and Sons there. And that building does viral online computing, and that neighborhood is a nest of creativity. It used to have great music and albums, but it was replaced by MP3s and, and streaming video, uh, digital videos. So my point, as you're about to say here, is that his great-grandson became an expert in the maker movement. His great-grandson went to San Francisco and opened Audio Cafe. His great-grandson wrote a book, which I urge you to read, which says, I got the future of the fabric business wrong in 2014 because of this maker movement. The network fabric business is one of the newest things in the digital economy. As you may have guessed, this great-grandson is my esteemed opponent, Mr. Andrew Keene. I doubt that Mr. Falber, that cloth merchant from Plock, would have dreamed that his great-grandson would be standing just a few hundred yards away from Oxford Street, the old fabric shop, making a living as a digital theorist and an information squared debater. And I doubt that Mr. Keene, nor I, nor you, can guess what wondrous jobs technology will bring to our great-grandchildren. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. 
sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Thank you very much indeed, Walter. Thank you very much for that. Although you did run over time, but there we go. All right. Our second speaker for the motion is economist George Magnus. After a long career in finance in the City of London, um, George has, has turned to writing and he's written The Age of Aging, a study of how demographics are changing the world, economy and social systems. So, George, please make your way to the lectern and um, tell us what you think. Thank you very much. Uh, so we're going to talk economics now, okay? Not populism. So to the British Prime Minister, David Cameron, it means children have to be taught how to make money and become a future Richard Branson or Karen Brady. To the most reverent Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, it means a life sentence of poverty for most and a divine right to wealth for a few. And to the scientist, now of film fame, Professor Stephen Hawking, it means possibly the end of the human race. It, ladies and gentlemen, of course, is modern digital technology comprising robots, robotic network systems, automation, 3D printing, and artificial intelligence. And what I'd like to put to you this evening is that these digital and robotic technologies constitute a very powerful economic threat to our livelihoods because of its effect on jobs, on income distribution, and because they demand that we focus on coping mechanisms that we do not yet have. Now, our opponents in this debate, and uh, you've already heard the first, will try to convince you that because mankind has always adapted to new technologies historically, we shouldn't fear the robotic revolution, but this time as they say, it really is different, and I'm going to tell you why. So just over 200 years ago, 64 men went on trial in York. These Luddites, as you've already heard, resisted the rising tide of power looms. They went on a rampage. They burned um, mills and machinery and so on. But their campaign, as we know, was myopic because the Industrial Revolution or the First Industrial Revolution did leave us all better off. Here's a couple of examples. In a typical artisan shop, that made plows. Before the Industrial Revolution, two men would spend 118 man-hours to make a plow. Come along steam power, and one plow can be produced by 52 men in less than four man-hours. In the new Ford production line in 1913, on one task, a one-man job was, uh, became a 29-man operation, lowering the amount of work time by nearly 35%. What we did is we harnessed power, and that exposed the limits of human brawn. But it was also complementary to human endeavour. This is the key point. The first industrial revolution created machines that were complementary to us as humanoids. It allowed us to blend men and machines in ways which boosted employment, growth, income, and sustained a rising and prosperous middle class like we could never have imagined, or our ancestors couldn't. The modern technological revolution is different. It's exposing the limits, not of human brawn, but of human brain. Uh, and instead of being complementary, modern technology is displacing us. Uh, capital is being substituted more and more for labor, threatening jobs, living standards, and, as we know from contemporary political debate, the fabric of the middle class. 
Not all jobs, of course, are at risk, as you've already heard. You know, machines are not sufficiently dexterous to do all kinds of manual work, and lots of human uh, cognitive and judgmental skills have not been uh, replicated by machines and may not. But they've already been doing routine-based or rule-based jobs on the factory floor and in offices for some time. Now they're, being doing, uh, they're doing problem solving, data mining, pattern matching, complex communications, report writing, research, document and data searches, searches and diagnosis. My eldest son, who's a pediatrician, basically now says that junior doctors have pretty much been wiped out and they all refer to Dr. Google. Um, that, I think, is sort of uh, an example of, of what um, uh, Steve was saying before. Between 1993 and 2010 in the United Kingdom, the number of middle-wage, middle-skill jobs fell by 11%, while the number of high-pay, high-skill jobs rose by more than 12%. Since 2010, the number of low-paying and high-paying jobs has gone up, but the number of middle-level jobs, middle-wage-paying jobs, has stagnated or dropped in a pattern that is replicated across the whole of Europe in the United States and indeed in some emerging countries, notably in China and India. The hollowing out of jobs, especially in the middle level, is contributing also to another contemporary ailment, which is rising income inequality. And both of these phenomena have bad macroeconomic outcomes which we have to take care of and, and pay attention to. And you don't need an economics degree, ladies and gentlemen, to know why. As this uh, familiar story uh, uh, will illustrate, Henry Ford, while touring a newly automated factory at the turn of the 20th century with the union boss Walter Reuter, Ford is supposed to have boasted, you see, Walter, who's going to pay your union dues? To which uh, Walter replied very sharply, Henry, Who's going to buy your flipping cars? Or words to that effect. <laughs> In a nutshell, ladies and gentlemen, successful capitalism needs us to be fully engaged, not just as gadget-savoring consumers, which we all are, but also as producers. In other words, we need to have stable, productive, high levels of employment, which is what robotics is undermining. And because capitalism rewards scarcity, and because of the robotics revolution is generating productivity gains that are benefiting a limited number of people, the principal rewards of modern technology are accruing to the owners of capital, not the owners of labor in the main. Think about the three biggest firms in Silicon Valley. They have 137,000 people, and these three companies have a market capitalization. In other words, they're worth uh, $1.2 trillion. Now, just cast your mind back 25 years to 1990, the three biggest companies in Detroit had 10 times as many workers, 1.2 million, and their combined market value was a mere $36 billion. This fundamental change in the relationship between capital and labor is also illustrated by what we see in lots of surveys about the rising share of profits in national income and the declining share of wages. You've already heard uh, from Hannah at the beginning, and I were going to mention him as well, that you already be familiar with the economist Thomas Piketty, even if you haven't read his book. It is quite big. Uh, but his key message is when the rate of return on capital is bigger than the rate of economic growth, you get rising economic inequality and concentration of wealth. Piketty says that this is a normal state of affairs, except for the period from the 1920s to the 1950s. And many subsequent studies, as I'm sure you know, have shown that the top 1% or the top 0.1% have increased their share of national income from 2% to 6 7 8%, uh, roughly the same as the bottom 90%. So the corollary of this trend, actually, if you think about it, is being fueled by large uh, capital-dominated technological change, and it's rather dystopian, I fear, uh, because as economic inequality rises, so political inequality rises, and those that benefit from more political power obviously seek changes which further their own economic advantage, and you could easily end up without coping mechanisms at a very kind of dystopian political future, which brings us back to the Archbishop of Canterbury's comments and even those of the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom who thinks, as I said, that our children need to be educated better to be entrepreneurs and innovators. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I conclude now with four points. First, perhaps the Luddites weren't so much wrong as 200 years early. Secondly, the bifurcation of the labour market and rising income inequality will become increasingly challenging for our standards of living and those of our children for the foreseeable future. Thirdly, our opponents will argue that in the long run, human ingenuity will win out and utopia will prevail. I would remind you of the quip from Lord Keynes, the famous British economist, who quipped that in the long run, we're all dead, by which he meant that the economist's focus on the long-run equilibrium was a waste of time because economic circumstances affect us now, next year, in the next few years, not at some vague point in the unmeasurable future. And that's really what is important and brings me to my final point, which is that we need to think about this really seriously and try to develop coping mechanisms. There could be many. Uh, better education, better training, improved access to capital, job protection schemes for certain occupations, higher minimum wage, direct transfers, labor-intensive construction, taxation of capital to help displaced workers, and so on. I'm not commending, ladies and gentlemen, any particular coping mechanism to you tonight, merely pointing out that we have few and need many as the robotics revolution evolves. Thank you very much indeed, George Magnus. Well, um, another economist now speaking against the motion, Pippa Malmgrem. Well, as well as creating flying robots, she runs the DRPM group, which advises institutional investors on politics and policy. And uh, she was also an advisor on financial markets to President George W. Bush. So please make your way to the lectern because the floor is yours now, Pippa. Thank you. So the Buddhists say that suffering comes from having an argument with reality. This is reality. We can talk about how Artificial intelligence, robotics is going to change our lives. But the danger is that we confuse the fact that the world economy makes these relentless demands for change. And that is universal. That is no change to the past whatsoever. As an economist, I can see that the demand for change on us is deeply painful. But what technology does is empowers us to adapt and to take advantage of our ability to engage in new forms of economic activity. And that is why this reality is so very, very important. I think the bottom line is that we have to understand we've just had roughly 100 years of fast advancing technological change. We've had 30 years of a software revolution. We now have as much power in an iPad as used to be only in a defense lab. That is now at everyone's fingertips. And with that, we now commence a hardware revolution, physical items. This is all part of what new technology empowers us to do. And before you say, ah, oh, well, that's only for the PhDs out in Silicon Valley who bring incredible engineering skills to the table, I say, no, how many of you came tonight using a taxi app? That's three taxi drivers at the company called Halo here in London who came up with the idea that they could create something out of nothing because of the power of artificial intelligence and robotics that gives us this ability today. And you may say, well, that's different. That's the world of apps. And I would say, is it really so different from 1927, when my grandmother left Sweden at the age of 16 and landed in the United States with no skills whatsoever and confronted the robotics of her day, which was a sewing machine. And she learned to use it. She became the seamstress to one of the wealthiest women in America, Mrs. William Randolph Hearst. 
And today, we find also in the business of sewing, robotics and artificial intelligence are playing their part. It's not all high-tech in Silicon Valley. I take you to the case of Jenny Doan, who runs a fantastic quilting company in Missouri. This is a woman who is getting 30 million YouTube hits for showing people how to make quilts, a very old-fashioned activity but not possible without computers, without the artificial intelligence to make the pieces the right size, to sew them together quickly. She employs 85 people, 300 people a day come from around the world to go to her shop in the middle of Missouri. We can look even closer. I have to say an interesting case in point, and for those of us who worry, well, we'll all have to become high tech, we'll all have to become good at computer technology and artificial intelligence, and anyone who isn't is left behind. I'll take a case of a company that's right here in London in this neighborhood in Chelsea and Westminster. It's called Ralph and Rousseau. It is a haute couture company that makes the stage costumes for Beyonce. Uh, it makes the dresses the Duchess of Cambridge occasionally wears. And the reason that they have just been admitted as the first British couturier into the Paris syndicate of couture in a 100 years is precisely because they don't use any automation. It is all hand sewing. And their issue is they can't find enough people who know how to actually sew. And so we see that robotics actually creates opportunities for people to not go down that path as well as to go down it. As someone who's in the robotics industry, I can tell you most of the innovation that's occurring in this field is not coming from the big companies. It's coming from the hobbyists. It's coming from people who are just playing with these things because they can, they have the power to, and it's interesting and it's fun. When you even listen to the senior management at places like Apple, they will say most of our innovation is coming from small groups of a few people, principally working out of a garage somewhere. This is a hugely democratic movement that is beginning to permit people to enter into the cutting edge of what's happening in the world economy without having to have elite skills. To that end, I have to say, as someone who's actually employing people in this business, what there's a shortage of out there is not intellectual capability or high levels of education and training. There's a shortage of people who have the practical skills, who know how to make an engine work, who know how to do electrical wiring. I mean, there are a lot of educated idiots, and I may be one of them because I have lots of degrees, but I can't change the tap washer when it goes wrong. We need more people who can do these things because they're the ones who the technology empowers to do something. And I would direct your attention to the maker movement, which has been so powerful. And now we have high schools all over the world where young people are able to build things, to use 3D printing, to create something out of absolutely nothing. There was recently a case of a fellow who created a lawnmower in his living room from 3D printing alone. This is an extraordinary moment in history that has the capacity to take up all of our imagination and our effort. And I have to say, one of my biggest objections to the Luddite arguments that we've talked so much about tonight is precisely this, that it, what it does is it says the essence of the human condition, which is to test the boundary of what's possible, that somehow we shouldn't do this. I deeply disagree, and I quote Richard Feynman, the famous physicist, who said, the scientific spirit of adventure is one of our core pieces of our heritage as the human race. The identification of the unknown and pushing the boundary so that we can then know it. How interesting that this week alone, astronomers have discovered a black hole that's like 100,000 times the size of the sun. With all of our efforts, with all the people looking at the heavens, we suddenly stumble upon something so immense and huge that we didn't see before? How can we possibly know with certainty 
that robotics and artificial intelligence will destroy jobs. My own experience is that actually it creates jobs. It just creates new and different jobs. For every robot, you can create five or six new jobs that will be in advertising and branding and distribution and logistics and legal and accounting, all the things that are needed to support this capability. So this idea that we can be certain, well, this is a problem, I think, because what can we possibly be certain about? The only thing we can be is human ingenuity. And so again, I come back to the human aspect of what we're looking at here. And I'm with W.H. Auden, the poet, who captured this so beautifully when he said, we're engaged in the process of discovering who we are, which involves learning the difference between the accidental limitations, which is our duty to outgrow, and the necessary limitations beyond which we cannot trespass with impunity. And as we think about our efforts to push up against the boundary of capability, to push into tomorrow's economy, that we don't confuse two different things. Robotics and artificial intelligence won't destroy jobs. They are the tools by which we will build the jobs we're going to have tomorrow. And they'll be different than the ones we do today, and thank goodness, because that will be much more interesting, exciting, and draw on our capabilities much more than anything else we can imagine. And with that, I'll finish. So there we are. You have heard our four panellists um, giving you their opening arguments. It is now your opportunity to put questions or comments to our panellists on uh, this motion. So there are roving microphones. So can I see a show of hands, please? Hi, Rohit Talwar from Fast Future. Um, our concern here is uh, particularly that those speaking against the motion that you've argued that you technology will create new jobs. But surely, if the rate at which we're advancing with robotics and artificial intelligence, firstly, won't robotics and artificial intelligence be able to do most of those new jobs that are being created? And secondly, the industries that are coming through require a much higher level of skill, a very different skill set to the people whose jobs are disappearing today, whether they're factory workers, office clerks, or, or administrative assistants. So how can you be so sure that this rapid pace of technological advancement won't simply eliminate jobs for good and that we'll need a lot less jobs to run the economy in the future. And where is the education going to come from for people to do those more highly skilled jobs because we're not doing it right now? Okay, thanks. Why, why don't you, Walter? Because if technology ever reduced the number of jobs, we'd all be out of work now. Instead, periods of technological change have always, and we still see it in the numbers happening now, been the times of the greatest job growth. Also, if you look at the places where the technology has come first, because the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. So there are places where it is. In the United States recently, after a decade of transforming technological growth, uh, whole new waves of mobile technology come in. The U.S. had its best uh, year for hiring in 15 years, 3 million new jobs just in one year. And they were spread across all sectors, retail, manufacturing, construction, whatever. Even now, we're seeing average hourly wages go up finally. And so it does show that as we look at the evidence of technology coming in, we've never had evidence that it reduces the jobs. But you make a good, important point, I think, which is the hollowing out and that we need education. When we went into the Industrial Revolution last time and had the same thing of the move from the agricultural economy to an industrial one, that's when in the United States high school became universal and free. If we are going to make this transition, and I agree with our opponents on this, we need to talk about and figure out how we're going to make it work. That's why I think the first two years of college or any trade school should now be universal and free. There are many ways of educating people for the new jobs, but these new jobs are happening across the economy. It's not just the highly skilled or the service workers. Thank you. So Very quickly, Pippa, yeah. One vote for 
you have to read on this subject David Gelertner's book called The Muse and the Machine, where he talks about the key thing that computers can't do is engage in metaphors or similes. The creative act, which Arthur Kessler describes so well in his book, The Act of Creation, this is the key issue. And that, I think, is the, where we have hope, and, and that's where the creative act will occur. All right, yeah. Uh, my name is Khaled Fatal. I'm uh, chairman of the Multilingual Internet Group. I may want to throw a curveball at the panelists. One conclusion I make from the, uh, from the title is, regardless of whether uh, to be afraid or not afraid, I think there is consensus that it's coming. So the change is coming and nobody can stop it. The question I'm posing to all panelists is, how do we reconcile corporate social responsibility? How do we reconcile the role of um, uh, empowering local communities vis-à-vis -vis the, uh, the changes that are going on, on, onto the, uh, on the Internet and with technology on topics like cybersecurity, child protection online? And um, I think these need to be uh, uh, factored in in how do we mitigate the challenges coming from the robots coming in. So far, that has not been addressed. Perhaps we can address it. Thank you. Um, maybe, Andrew, Keen, do you want to look at that? I mean, I sort of suppose that brings us to regulation or, or how governments should respond. Do we need legislation? That final point, that's point there. Well, there's this vision in Silicon Valley in particular, sort of a libertarian one articulated by some very brilliant people, people like P Peter Thiel, who, who argues that government is the problem, not the solution, that regulation is the enemy and that the market always resolves everything. But the problem with people like Teal is that they have no memory. It's rather like the internet. Um, they're skilled at forgetting. And uh, what we need to remember about the Industrial Revolution, I think one of the things that unites both teams here, that this is of an immense change, equivalent in its profundity and its significance to the Industrial Revolution. That when that happened, when you had child labor, when you had terrible pollution, when you had the uncontrolled consequences of the early Industrial Revolution, the market didn't resolve things. It was the government that had to step in, the grown-ups. And if we leave it to the children, to the Zuckerbergs and the Teals of this world, then I fear that the thing will get even worse. So government, you know, and, and when I say this in America, I'm always accused of being a European socialist. And as you can tell, I'm not European, and I'm not a socialist. I believe in the market, but I don't believe in an unregulated market. And the problem at the moment, I did a lunch earlier today with a group of politicians, uh, uh, people from the House of Lords. The problem is also with politicians. They're too slow. There are two speeds in the world today. There's the hyperspeed of Silicon Valley, and there's the hyper-slowness of political bodies in Washington, D.C. So we, we can't necessarily slow Silicon Valley down, but we can yeah. certainly speed up the traditional political authorities. Pippa, do you want to respond to Andrew? Yeah, I would take exactly the, the opposite side of that and say what we want to do is speed up the integration of humanity into technology. We want to bring people into this space faster. I come back to the vocational training that we've talked a little bit about, but it is an amazing moment that what is required here are practical everyday skills. We would do well to put shop class, vocational training, back in junior and senior high schools. There's a global shortage right now, for example, of welders. They're hiring people in their 70s to work with modern robotics because welding still is a skill. A robot can't replicate what a human knows about this. In deep well drilling, Shell and big companies like that, the drill have found, you can try and give the equipment that will go laterally and around the bend when you drill to someone who has less than 10 years of experience, but they will break the equipment. The human nuance and knowledge of how things work is still essential in the application but of robotics. What, do you, what does your side say? What do you two say, though, to the question from... from from the, the lady who talked about the textile industry in India and how new technology will skew industry worldwide. I mean, some regions of the world 
stand to benefit more than others, surely? Well, but this is the normal case of the world economy. It's a fluid thing. Job do move. We're seeing right now jobs are moving from China and manufacturing to the Midlands here in the UK and to the Midwest in the United States. It's a fluid moving thing and we should stop thinking about national boundaries. We should think more about on a global basis where do we see economic activity occurring and I think the more dispersed it is, the better. I, I, I honestly think we need to stop romanticising about this subject. Well, please do. Let her have her applause. That, that's a very kind of romantic view, uh, which, which I would applaud as well, but I just don't think it's right. Um, <laughs> So I'll give, you, I'll give you a classic case, right? Um, I mean, we all, you know, we all wonder at, the, the, you know, at China and, and its magnificent achievements over the last 25 years. But I think China was unique, right? India now has a new government. Very, it's got a strong majority in the legislature, just had a budget. Everybody's very, very bullish about what's going to happen in India. Prime Minister Modi wants to basically build up India's manufacturing base based on essentially around uh, low-value uh, products, you know, toys and textiles and so on and so forth, as well as higher technology products as well. He wants to build it up, you know, over the next 25 years to become a China. It's just not going to happen because the technology is going to pass them by. They need to find new solutions to the problems they've got. Andrew? Uh, I, I just want to come back at what Pippa said because I think she should cross sides. She's making our argument for us. She's not mentioning lawyers or doctors or accountants or teachers. All we hear from her is welders. So we're all supposed to become welders. She's right, as I made the point, as Morovich recognized. Computers aren't able to do everything. Robots aren't able to become welders. Big deal. There isn't enough jobs out there for everyone to become welders or plumbers. The problem is the profound skilled labor that represented the backbone of our meritocratic, middle-class economy. And from these guys, all I hear are entrepreneurs, I hear app developers, I hear search engine optimizers, I hear welders. I don't hear the dignity of labor that represented the the core of 20th century life. So here's the question to the audience. Would you rather have your surgeon have more precision If you would rather have a surgeon that has more precision, then you are in favor of the human element guiding the technology. You are in favor of a world in which the human being still has an essential role to play, but the technology makes what we do better. Briefly, and then I'll come back with the next point, which I think would then relate which is that strong artificial intelligence is just around the corner and that will change everything and all of human history will be different because of that. I do think that we've always thought that AI was coming ever since about 1956 and it always is a little bit harder than we think. Uh, You know, Google has finally created something that can spot cats. It takes 16,000 computers to find the cat in the picture and they still get most of it wrong. Uh, The same is true with uh, Watson. IBM has decided not to have it as a diagnostic, but have it in combination with doctors because the doctors bring a certain creativity to it. So whether it is uh, domain awareness or, or creativity, the humans have a way of cognitive thinking that is so fundamentally different in its carbon-based wetware system of our brain than in the digital silicon system that artificial intelligence remains a mirage and it's not about to change everything. Our creativity, our humanism will always be part of the party. So, I now have the results of the post-debate vote. Let me just remind you how you voted, audience, uh, when you came in to the uh, hall. For the motion, the robots are coming and they will destroy our livelihoods, 31% for the motion, 42% against the motion, 27% don't know. After the debate, for the motion, 43%. 
against the motion, 52%, and the don't know is 5%. So it seems to me that the uh, for the motion gained 12 percentage points and against the motion gained 10 percentage points. So it's the, uh, in the audience, it's the against the motion. The robots are coming and destroy our livelihoods. They're obviously more sanguine about it. So I think, in a sense, both sides have won. So clearly... <laughs> the, So clearly, anyway, there's been agreement on the increasing impact that artificial intelligence and robots will have on our lives, whether that's to the benefit or to the detriment of mankind. Well, I don't think we have consensus on that. Thank you to my panel. Thank you to my audience here. Thank you to Intelligence Squared for making this debate possible. Thank you to you, wherever you are watching this. From me, Zainab Badawi in London. Goodbye.